0: verses 23 through 25, and then John 21, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4, 23 through 25, praise God, amen. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, those that had the palsy, he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Going now to the book of John, chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. John 21, verses 24 and 25. Praise God. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And all the church said amen. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so this is part four of our study of an overview of the Gospels. And um Uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish it up today and, and hopefully begin the book of Mark next week. Amen. But let's put our Bibles down right now. Let's lift our hands, lift our voices. Let's talk to the Lord together, everyone. Amen. Everybody, let's talk to the Lord. you let's worship him together everybody let's give the lord praise together right now i love you jesus i thank you god i worship your name oh lord praise god praise god praise god amen amen god bless you you may be seated let me um, let me do a little review because last sunday we we got away from this whole uh, study and went a totally different direction, and so I need to, to bring everyone up to speed to where we left off uh, two weeks ago, but uh, I, I've i been trying to give you an overview of the four gospels as a group of books, and, and as I've said, I want to probably do this with each of these uh, four gospels before we actually begin uh, teaching on that book. I think it's good to come back and review some things that we need to know um, as we enter into these books, and uh, we we understand that these uh, these are the gospels or the books that that declare to us the good news, um, the good message of salvation. Amen. They they tell us about the life of Jesus Christ. They generally generally they speak. Uh, they begin somewhere around his birth and end somewhere around his, his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, the, the books focus on his life, his ministry, uh, his teachings, his miracles, and that, that's, what, that's what these books are all about. And then we begin to talk about the reason why uh, there are four of them. Why not just one book uh, that would cover everything? And, and put it all together, and, and we began to explain some reasons behind this and, and talk to you. Uh, we went back to the book of Ezekiel, if you'll remember, and this is kind of where we got sidetracked even that Sunday. Uh, we were looking into the book of Ezekiel uh, where he spoke about those beasts and uh, the four faces, the face of a man, the face of an ox, uh, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, and, and we talked about how those Uh, faces each of them represents some aspect of Jesus Christ the Messiah amen and and then we showed you how that in each of these gospels you can take one of those faces and and you can see that that is the picture that each uh, of these gospel writers is trying to paint Uh, for for Matthew, he was uh, Jesus was presented as the Messiah or the King of the Jews, and that is the face of the lion, the King of beasts, uh, the, the one with power and authority. Then in Mark, he is presented as the suffering servant, and that's the way Mark shows us, and that is that that is the ox. And then in Luke, Luke stresses the humanity of Christ, and and there we see the face of the man. And And then in John, uh, it is uh, his divinity that John focuses on, and that is the eagle that takes us in to the highest uh, heights. And so it, it needs all four aspects to give the full truth. Amen. We we know because there are four, four books that uh, as a sovereign, he came to reign and to rule. As a servant, he came to suffer and to serve. As the son of man, he came to share and to sympathize and to empathize and to feel what we feel. And then as God in flesh, he comes to to reveal and to redeem. Praise God. Amen. And so we see a full picture of Jesus Christ through these four gospels. So that, that's where we left off uh, last year. We were talking, got into John showing the deity of Christ and and then I got a little sidetracked and got to dealing with the Godhead and and that's as far as we got in that lesson. So I want to come back and pick up right there today and, and talk about the uh, the, the four books again. I want to I want to talk about some comparisons and some contrasts between these four books just to help us understand better when we get ready to start the book of Mark what it is that we're really dealing with in this book and have an understanding of what this book contains. Amen. Uh, what we see is Matthew setting down to write primarily not exclusively you understand but primarily he is writing to the Jews. We talked about that. We reminded you of that as we taught through the book of Matthew. We saw the constant references to the Old Testament, the quoting of Scripture, and and it was was evident and obvious that Matthew was focusing his attention on the Jews. Then the book of Mark. Mark was writing more for the Romans. Uh, He was Talking to the ruling class, to those who were exercising their authority over others. And Mark. Begins to show the servant. He begins to show what our attitude really ought to be. And then Luke, Luke is writing to the Greeks. He's writing to those intellectuals. He's writing uh, to those that are proud of, of who they can make themselves to become. And, and so Luke shows Jesus as, as a man. He is a man. He suffers as a man. He feels what a man feels. He he is one of us. Amen. And then John shows him. John is writing uh, Matthew to the Jews, Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks, and John is writing to the church. And he's letting us know that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, Now we can see this. As we look at this, and if you're, if you're taking notes and you write this down, you can see it unfold in, in, in so many aspects of these books. Let, let's consider for just a moment the genealogy that is presented in each of these. I told you that each book uh, generally starts somewhere around the birth of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about the genealogy that is presented. Matthew was written to the Jews. So what does Matthew say?
1: Matthew 1 and 1, here's how he opens his book. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son
0: of Abraham. Do you understand how important that is to the Jews? That's crucial information to the Jews. And and that's the way that Matthew starts. He he begins and he follows this genealogy and, and and traces his lineage from Abraham through David and on down. But Mark, who is writing to the Romans, doesn't have that genealogy because that wasn't important to the Romans. They didn't care. It it. it, it in fact, it may have even been a detriment to the Romans to have shown the extreme Jewish nature of Jesus Christ. and so Mark excludes that altogether. Luke, now Luke, when he begins to give the the uh, uh, lineage and I, I want to I didn't write this down, but get your Bible there uh, brother Jared and And when we begin to see the uh, the genealogy. Of uh, of Jesus as it was presented in the book of Luke, Luke gives us a different picture altogether, and and it is uh, in Luke chapter three and verse thirty eight. This is where Luke inserts the genealogy, but I want you to see where Luke traces it back to. Now, remember, Luke is writing to the Greek; he is he is appealing to the the, the Greek and
1: uh, to the Gentile, and so here is what. Luke has to say, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. See, he didn't trace him back just to Abraham, to the father of the Jews, but he
0: traces the lineage all the way back to the very first man, because that is the idea that Luke is presenting, that Jesus was a man. He was a man among us. He didn't walk among us as the Greeks think of their gods walking among men. Understand this. The Greeks have their concept of their gods coming down to earth and and the things that their gods would do. But Luke was showing, no, no, our God's not like that. He became a man in every sense. He became one of us. Hallelujah. And and then John, John's writing to the church, and John is showing the deity of Christ Christ. So where does John begin? I didn't put this in there either. I'm sorry, but John 1 and 1. Where does John begin? John doesn't really give us a lineage. John doesn't trace him back to to Abraham or to Adam. But where does John begin in John 1 and 1?
1: In the beginning. In
0: the beginning. This is where John starts. John goes way before Adam. And he says, look, he's writing this book so we can understand that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And so he introduces him not as the son of Abraham and not as the son of Adam, but he introduces him as the word, the logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, God, and the word was God. God. That's the way he opens his book. Praise God. So we, we see this we see it uh, the first miracle that's recorded this is this is another way that we see th- these uh, things uh, shown to us who they're writing to what they're trying to accomplish um, Matthew Matthew now in in chapter four verse twenty three we read it as our text. It, It just says uh, generically that Jesus was healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people. doesn't really name a specific miracle. It's just more talking about his life, uh, his actions. But when Matthew gives us the very first miracle, the very first miracle to appear in the book of Matthew that is specifically named is Matthew chapter 8
1: verses 2 and 3. And behold, there came a leper and uh, and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed.
0: Now Matthew's writing to the Jews. To a Jew, leprosy was the worst possible thing that could happen. Because not only was it a disease that would destroy your body and eventually take your life, but if you touch somebody that had this disease, you became unclean. You had to go and and purify. If you touch something they'd worn, something they'd sit in, a house they had been in, everything becomes unclean. There is an uncleanness that passes to them just by association. So Matthew is reaching for the Jew. What does he do? He shows that Jesus had power even over the worst possible disease they could fathom. Jesus can go in and touch the leper. Oh, hallelujah. Jesus can touch the leper and Jesus doesn't become contaminated by the leper. Jesus doesn't take on the disease. Instead, the leper gets some of what Jesus has to offer. Hallelujah. You know, it's amazing. The, the Jews had a lot of charges, a lot of accusations that they made against Jesus. There were a lot of things that they said about him. But I don't read where they ever begin to, to um, uh, speak bad of him touching a leper. And the reason, there's a reason for that. You know, if they want to try to bring charges and say, this man's unclean, this man can't come into the synagogue. He's been with the leper. He's touched the leper. The response is this. Show me the leper. Take me to him. Let me see the leper. Because when they bring the man in, he's not a leper. Hallelujah. That's why Paul called him the incorruptible God. I'm telling you, God is the only one that can touch sin and not become sinful. God is the only one that can touch uncleanness and not become unclean. Hallelujah. For us, for us, if we touch it, we take on the unclean properties. But for him, he's incorruptible. So Jesus, Jesus was shown by Matthew to be even more powerful than the most dread disease the Jews knew. Praise God. But now Mark, in fact, both Mark and Luke. Mark Is writing to the Romans. All right? He's writing to the ruling class, those that were exercising their authority over others. That's the group he's writing to. And Mark, the first
1: miracle that Mark records is Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 26. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone what have we to do with thee thou Jesus of Nazareth art thou come to destroy the destroy us i know thee who thou art the holy one of god and jesus rebuked him saying hold thy peace and come out of him and when the unclean spirit had torn him he cried with and cried with a loud voice he came out of him and so
0: so Mark is writing to the Romans. Mark is writing to the people who have taken authority over the Jews. And Mark is showing the Romans that Jesus has authority, not just over man, but over all of the powers of the universe. There is no authority like the authority that Jesus has. Praise God. Luke tells the same story.
1: First miracle in Luke is Luke chapter 4, verses 33 through 35. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out, cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and heard him not. So here's the same story. Now, Luke is writing to the Greek,
0: to those intellectuals, those, those who do so much, uh, take so much pride in their, in their thinking. But yet, while they were so intellectual, the Greeks were also a very superstitious people. They, they, they believed strongly in, in, in demonic forces. And in fact, a lot of the superstitions that we hold today were handed to us from the Greeks. So what did Luke show the Greek? That Jesus has power over the devil. Jesus has power over all of this. These, these The Greeks, uh, some of them were into demonology. Some of them into demon worship. They understood demon possession. And so Luke is showing that Jesus is greater than any of that. Hallelujah. And then John. Now, now let me just say something. While I'm... Matthew, Matthew's the first miracle he records is the healing of a leper, but he doesn't say that was Jesus' first miracle. All right, you understand? There's there's no contradiction here. It's just what the writer felt led to identify first in his book as he's telling the story. You know, if you read two biographies, of of one man. You're going to read different stories that happened in the man's life. It doesn't mean there's a contradiction here, but it's just dependent on what the author is trying to accomplish, what stories he tells. So so Matthew tells about healing the leper. Mark and Luke talk about uh, casting out devils. And then John. John is writing to the church, and John is showing the divinity, the deity of Christ. So the
1: first miracle that John records
0: is John chapter 2, verses 9
1: through 11. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So John's writing to the church and John
0: is showing us the divinity of Christ. And so what is the first miracle that John records? And John says this was the beginning of miracles. So John does tell us where it all started. But the first miracle that he records and evidently the first miracle that Jesus performed was changing the elements from water to wine. Hallelujah. Who can do that but God? God's the only one that could change the chemical composition. Well, praise God. And so that's what he's showing them. I want you to understand this is not just another man. This is not just another teacher. This is not just a, a, a rabbi. This, this is more. This is God in flesh hallelujah and so that's where he begins his story we we, we see it um, in Jesus teachings in, in the way that Jesus uh, addresses certain issues. I, I hope this is not boring you today this is but but for us to understand a, we get the picture of what's going on in these books let's consider just just uh, uh, Two examples here of, of, of Jesus teaching against the Pharisees. Uh, Matthew
1: chapter 23 and verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. All right, now,
0: now I want you to see something. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, you have omitted the weightier matters of what? The law. The law. That's important to the Jew. That's important to the Jew. The law was important to the Jew. So Matthew included that as he's writing here. You have omitted the weightier matters of the law. But when Luke records
1: it, Luke eleven forty two. 42. But woe unto you, Pharisees. For ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These are ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Do You see, where Matthew spoke of the law, Luke speaks of
0: love. The love of God was something that even the Gentiles, even the Greeks could comprehend. The law didn't matter to them. But the love of God mattered. Now, please, let me me just say that. Don't don't think, again, that this is a contradiction. Um, It's not. I submit to you that I believe Jesus said this twice. I know as a preacher there are many times that when God gives me a message that I feel it's for more than one congregation. Now, I don't say the exact same words each time I preach it but I give the same message, the same concept. So I'm telling you, Jesus taught the same lesson, I believe, more than once. And so I don't think either man was wrong in what they said. But what they stressed, for Matthew, reaching for the Jew, it's the law. For Luke, reaching for the Greek, it's the love of God. Hallelujah. Let's, let's look at
1: another. Matthew uh, 23, verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sca- right, now, sepulchers. Now, 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 now look at this.
0: You are like unto
1: whited sepulchers. Okay? Whited sepulchers. Read. Right? Which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. All right, so... In this instance, when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, Matthew has written
0: and said that Jesus likened them to whitened sepulchres. Now, now this was this was specifically for Jewish ears. Um, because if a Jew crossed a grave, he was considered unclean. He was ceremonially defiled. And, and even if he walked over it without knowing it was a grave, if he learned later that it was a grave, he became uh, defiled and unclean and had to go through the process of purification. And so the Jews began uh, the practice of whitening graves so that you could see them clearly and avoid them and not become unclean. But that was a practice among the Jews. The Gentiles didn't do that. They didn't have the same prescription of uncleanness. Are you with me? So listen to the way that Luke records it. Luke eleven forty four.
1: 44. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are as graves. For as you appearing. are
0: as great. He doesn't
1: say white in sepulchers, does he? He doesn't
0: use that Jewish term, but he is using a term that Gentiles can understand. Hallelujah. You are as graves which appear not. And the men that walk over them are not the aware are of them. men are not even aware. And so understand, understand that that in each of these gospels there is a particular goal that that is being accomplished through the writing of these men. God inspired these men to write in different ways for different groups to reach every mindset. Praise God. Hallelujah. Let, let, let's consider another here. Uh, as, as Jesus talked about the kingdom. When we went through the book of Matthew, we saw that, that uh, repeatedly Jesus spoke of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, there are 32 times that that phrase appears in the book of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he does use kingdom of God only five times. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that when the Jews wanted to express a superlative, when they wanted to really show how magnificent something was, then they just added the phrase of God. They, they would add that to it. And so, uh, for example, when they spoke of Jerusalem, they spoke of the city of God. This, this is a great city. This is a phenomenal city. Uh, you, you'll even read where they called the Lebi- uh, the cedars of Lebanon, the cedars of God. So if Jesus was using the term kingdom of God to the Jews, the Jews have got a kingdom in their mind. Right? The Jews are looking for a kingdom, but a kingdom on earth. And so if they just use the phrase kingdom of God to the Jew, this is no different than the cedars of God. We're just talking about how great this kingdom's going to be, but it's still on earth. So when Jesus spoke to the Jews, he would use the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, to let them know it's a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. Praise God. Hallelujah. But instead, when we read Luke, Luke never uses, not even one time, uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. But in every reference, it is the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. So to the Gentile, to the Gentile, uh, the, the kingdom of heaven wouldn't, wouldn't appeal to him. It, it wouldn't make any sense to him. But if they understood that this is a kingdom that's being established by God, then they can grasp that. That becomes important to them This kingdom is being built by the one true creator. Praise God. And so so I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you today that as we read, as we study, when we get ready to go into the book of Matthew, we've got to understand who it is Mark, or into the book of Mark, I'm sorry. We've got to understand who it is Mark is trying to reach, uh, who Mark is speaking to, what is his purpose. And then we begin to understand some of the incidents that Mark chose to record, some of the things that Mark chose to, to put in his gospel felt inspired of God to include as he wrote. And it's different than all of the others. Praise God. And again, I say that it's not, it's not that the men disagreed with one another, it's not that these men uh, were, were um, arguing on points or, or contradicting one another, but, but they were describing different instances. And this is what I've said to you throughout the book of Matthew: you never see it as a contradiction, just see it as a compliment. It's adding to. It's not fighting against. In fact, let's go back and read again uh, John chapter 21 and verse number uh, 25.
1: Let's just read verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which, which, if they should be written to everyone, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain... the books that should be written. So I'm telling you, I'm telling you today that
0: these are not contradictory stories. These are not uh, examples that contradict. John said there's no way that the world could contain the books if we wrote everything Jesus did. So I believe that he taught, as I said, taught the same lesson more than once. I believe he gave the same parables more than once. I believe he cast demons. Uh, in, in one place it would say one. another place it would say two. And, and people say there's a contradiction. No, there's no contradiction. They're complementary. Either it was two different instances or one of the writers simply mentioned only one for a purpose. But the other one was present. But we don't see these books Disagreeing with each other. We see them complimenting each other. We see them showing different aspects of the one who came to save us. Praise God. You know, I think even when we look to the end of the book, I want you to get your Bible. Um, Even when we look to the end of these gospels, when we look to the end of these gospels, we see how they chose to close their books. And and it fits into this very pattern that we have seen. Uh, Now, in the book of Matthew, um, I tried to find a good example uh, in Matthew, but really the whole of Matthew 28. Matthew 28 begins with Jesus' resurrection, and and that's the story that's told. And it ends right there. He's, He's resurrected. He's appeared to his disciples. That's the end. That was where Matthew chose or, or was led to, to end there. Why? Because he was writing to the Jews about their king. And he has now shown that the Messiah was king even over death, hell, and the grave. Hallelujah. That's the closing argument to the mind of the Jew. This one was not even bound by death. Now, when we get to Mark, Mark goes a little further before he closes his book.
1: In Mark chapter 16 and verse 19 read. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. All right. Now, so how does how does Mark... End his mark says
0: that he ascended Mark didn't just end with the resurrection but he ascended up to the place of power that's what the that's what the right hand of God is I, I you know maybe I should throw this in for those who wonder when the Bible speaks of Jesus being on the right hand of of God, um, you you've got to understand that uh, that doesn't mean that one person is sitting on the right hand of another person. You know, I've I've taught you. In fact, when and I don't want I don't want to get sidetracked today and get into the oneness again. Um, but are you still in Mark? That that was that was Mark uh, sixteen and what nineteen. Okay, now we're going to back up just a little bit into what Mark said just two chapters
1: earlier, Mark 14 and verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. The right hand of power. And coming in the clouds of heaven. So
0: Jesus has already told them, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. So. He's already written that when he comes along two chapters later and says they saw him sitting on the right hand of God. Hallelujah. See, when when, when I've taught you on the Godhead, and again I'm I'm trying to not get too sidetracked with all this, but when I've taught you on the Godhead, one of the things that I've shown uh, through the Scripture, the Scripture is very clear that first of all, God is everywhere. He's everywhere. God is not a person. We talked about this uh, last week, God is, or, or two weeks ago. God is not a person. God is a spirit, not a person. He's a spirit, and as a spirit, he fills the universe. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. The heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. We've gone through that. David talking about, you know, if I ascend up, if I ascend to heaven, he's there. If I make my bed in hell, he's there. If I take the wings of the morning, and wherever I go, you're there. God is everywhere. So where's the right side of everywhere? It'd be like this. Stand up, Brother Jared. Um. Everybody agrees that there is, there is, um, oxygen in this room, everybody agrees there's oxygen in this room, right? Brother Jared, I want you now to go stand on the right side of the oxygen.
1: Well, you 're not going
0: anywhere where 's the right side of the oxygen? where's the left side of the there's not a right and left, thank you there's not a right and left when it 's everywhere. God is everywhere. God as a spirit is everywhere. And so as a spirit that is omnipresent, there is no literal right hand for Jesus to sit on. But the right hand, as Mark has already shown us, is the hand of power. And, and this is throughout the Bible. In fact, there was a group of men that were, uh, that were able to, to uh, fight with their left hand, and the Bible made a specific note of that because it was so unusual. But throughout Bible times, the right hand was always the hand of power. In fact, that's really how we have come to use the term, this is my right-hand man. This is, this is the man that, that, that I've put my uh, authority, my confidence in. It, it is a term. It is, it is a symbol. It, it is a, uh, an analogy. God as a spirit, as a spirit, doesn't have a literal right hand. And so you don't have God and Jesus sitting in his right hand. That's not the way it is. Um, In fact, the Bible says, another thing that I've taught you, with God, God is a spirit and a spirit is invisible. The Bible calls him the invisible God. And the Bible says no man hath seen God at any time. The Bible says no man can see God. You know, if if the oxygen were to become visible today, what would we see? That's all we'd see. We couldn't see anything else, right? Are you following me? How could you see God? He's everywhere. He's invisible. You can't see him. In fact, the Apostle Paul is one of those who wrote that no man has seen God at any time. Speaking of the Spirit. So when people try to tell me about Stephen seeing Jesus on the right hand of God, my answer to them is Paul was there. He was there. He saw it happen. He was holding the coats of those that were doing it. Right? Acts. Get your Bible. Acts. I hate making statements and then not proving it. Acts chapter 7. Let's just, let's just read the whole story here. Verse 54.
1: When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and right, said. Now, now,
0: now, hang on a minute. Because that verse did not say that he saw Jesus and God. He saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God, but it doesn't say he saw
1: God. All right. All right. Read on. And said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Right. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. Right. And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet. At a young man's feet
0: whose name was Saul. This is Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul. He was there when it happened. He was present when it took place. He heard what Stephen said. And yet he said... No man has seen God at any time. That includes Stephen. Do we believe that every word of the Bible is inspired? Then what Paul wrote when Paul said, no man has seen God at any time, that was inspired by God. And so it's true. And, of course, this was written years after Paul had witnessed this taking place because Paul was not even converted at this point. He saw it happen, he heard what Stephen said, and he still came back and wrote no man has seen God. So what did Stephen see? Well, let's let's finish the story.
1: And they stoned Stephen. They stoned Stephen? Calling upon wait, God. Wait, wait, wait.
0: Calling upon Calling upon Calling upon I'm waiting for the rest of you. Calling upon God. That's better. And saying,
1: Lord Jesus, wait a minute, wait a
0: minute. And saying, Lord Jesus, he called upon God. And when he called upon God, what did he call him? He called him Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. This is not two persons, you don't see it as two different persons. Amen. But it is exactly as Jesus described it, uh, as Jesus said it in Mark chapter 14, when he said, you're going to see the Son of Man in the right hand of power. What he's saying was that this human that is here, this man that is God in flesh, all of that is about to change. And I'm going to ascend up into the heights. And what you're going to see then is not a lowly, suffering servant hallelujah and that's the reason why Mark includes this in his gospel because he's showing those Romans who wanted power over everybody who wanted to beat everybody down Mark has built this he's told this story he was a suffering servant he served others he did for others he waited on others he helped others and then what happened in the end in the end he was exalted to the highest possible place that a person could go he was given that seat of Authority, Amen, the seat of power over all the universe. Hallelujah. Praise God. So don't don't see this as two, too. In fact, I, you know, to those who believe there's a trinity, I if if the heavens are open and and Stephen is seeing this, if there's a Trinity. Where's the Holy Ghost? Why didn't he see the Holy Ghost there? Hallelujah. Well, there's not a Trinity. There's not three persons in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is just another description of God. He is the Holy One of Israel, and he is a Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. It's just another descriptive title for God. And Stephen did not see two persons. Stephen never claimed to see two persons, but he was using a term that the Jews understood full well. In fact, this term, the right hand of God, is what Miriam said delivered them from the Red Sea. Thy right hand hath delivered us. Does that mean that God, that five fingers appeared and God karate chopped the waters? No, it was a symbol of God's power. What Miriam was saying was, God, by your great power, you delivered us. Hallelujah. And so when we read about the right hand of God, it's an allegory. It's a symbol. It's a type. It's not a literal five-fingered hand. Praise God. So, got off the subject um, a little bit there, but... But Matthew to the Jew writes, and he ends with the resurrection. The king, even over death, hell, and the grave. Mark, writing to the Romans who exercise authority and showing them that, that the Messiah came as a servant. He humbled himself. He came as a servant. But in the end, he was exalted. So he takes him beyond just the resurrection And he goes to the ascension. Luke then is writing to the Greek, to the intellectual, to those who who build their lives around how smart they are and they take such pride in their physique and their humanity. And we read when Luke closes, Luke chapter 24, read verse 44.
1: And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you. Wait a minute, 49, I'm sorry. And behold, I That's send it. the promise of my father. 49, I couldn't read my own handwriting. You. All right, 49, and behold, I send the promise send of my father, of my upon, father upon you. But tarry ye, tarry in, the ye in the city of, of Jerusalem, Jerusalem until you be endued with power from See, on high. Luke goes even further
0: now than Mark does. Do you see the progression? Matthew Ends with the resurrection. Mark goes to the ascension. Luke says, but there's something even beyond the ascension. There's a coming spirit that's going to give us power. We're not going to do anything by our own intellect. We're not going to accomplish things by our physique, by our own abilities. But the way that you're going to get it done is the promise of the Father. You're going to have to have the Holy Ghost to do what needs to be done. Isn't that the way Paul addressed them when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth? My speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom. He said, I came in demonstration of the Spirit. And that's what Luke is doing here. In fact, you know, Luke and Paul traveled together. So that's what Luke is doing here in all of this. Luke is trying to teach these Greeks. You can't trust in your flesh. It's not going to be done through your flesh. There's something greater. You need to be endued with power from on high. The only way you'll ever be what God wants you to be is through the power of the Holy Ghost. That's right. People say to me, Preacher, I can't live that life. My answer is I can't either. But God can. And if I let him live through me, I don't have any problems. Well, praise God. The power of the Spirit enables me to become what God wants me to become. So, so Matthew ends at the resurrection. Mark ends at the ascension. Luke ends at the outpouring of the Spirit. And let me just show you. I don't think this is coincidental. The very last chapter of John, John chapter 21
1: and verse 23. Then went the saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple... Should not die. Yet Jesus said unto him, He shall not die. But if I will, if I will that he tarry till I come, what does that take? All right. Now, now look, it's just
0: almost in passing, but this is in the closing moments of John's gospel, and and I don't want to get into the whole story here that that um, of what's. I don't want to have to go into detail of the story of what's going on here, but you know, uh, Jesus had made a statement and and uh, had 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 um, said something about John that the other disciples totally misunderstood and the and, and word began to spread that, uh, uh, that John was not going to die. And uh, that is not at all what Jesus said. Jesus simply asked a question. Uh, the question is found in verse 22. Jesus said to them, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee, follow thou me? They, they, Jesus had just told Peter, Peter the days coming that they're going to carry you places you don't want to go. They're going to be taking care of you. You're going to be an old man. You're not going to be able to do anything for yourself. And he said, you need to follow me. And then, then they started looking at John and they said, what's going to become of John? And Jesus said, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Now, I'm going to tell you, this is, This is um, a nice way of saying it's none of your business. What I do with John has no bearing on what I expect out of you. Hallelujah. And so then some of them began to say that Jesus said John was not going to die. But Jesus did not say that. He said, if I will that he tarry. Now this is what I want to point you to. That I tarry for how long? If I will that he tarry till what? Hallelujah. Matthew ends with the resurrection. Mark ends with the ascension. Luke ends with the outpouring of the spirit. But John, who started way before the others in his gospel, ends way after the others in his gospel because he is pointing us. Though it be in passing, he's pointing us the second coming hallelujah, amen praise God and how fitting that John who is John writing to who's John writing to the church, what do we need to be concerned with as the church the second coming, we need to be looking for that day, we need to be in love with that day, we need to be excited about that day hallelujah, that's what the church has got to focus on we got to get ready because it's going to happen. <laughs> and it's not that John ignores the other things. You understand? Because those things are important for us. But you understand that John was writing to those that had already accepted that. It was settled in their mind. Praise God. And he takes us, carries us higher, carries us beyond what the others do, and he shows us here the ultimate. He takes us all the way to the end of the church age. Oh, hallelujah. Won't we thank God for it for just a moment? Let's thank the Lord. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so, so what, what, what I've tried to show you through these lessons, uh, as, we've, as we've taken this overview of the gospel, what, what I have tried to show you in all of this is really each of them are unique and each of them has their own approach to telling this story. Each of them come at it from a different angle and are reaching for a different crowd. And yet throughout all four of these, there is a common theme, there is a common purpose, and and it doesn't matter who's reading the book, there is a common goal. Hallelujah. And that's to point us to the Savior so that we might be saved. Let's go, back. let's go back and talk about these four creatures that Ezekiel saw for just a moment. Let's try to bring all of this together. Ezekiel chapter 10
1: and verse 10. Let's, let's look at this. And as for their appearances, they four had one likeness, as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. And as
0: for their appearances, they four had one likeness. I'm telling you, that's what we've got to see when we talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes, there are four of them, but there's one likeness. There is one image that they are all presenting. There is one purpose that they are giving us. And I think John best explains what that purpose is when he writes to us in John chapter 20 and verse number 31.
1: But these are written that you might believe that This Jesus is
0: why I've written to you so that you can believe
1: that Jesus is the Christ, the Son
0: of God, God, and that believing believing, you might have have life through his name. That's their goal. That's their purpose. That's what they're trying to accomplish. They want to tell them whether they're writing to the Jews, to the Romans, to the Greeks, or to the church, there's a common goal, a common purpose. I want to point you to the one that can save your soul. I want to point you to the one that is able to change your life. Hallelujah. That's what it's all about. church that ought to be our focus and it ought to be our aim and it ought to be the goal of everything we do. Brother Jared every message that you ever preach there ought to be one goal in mind and that is to present Jesus Christ to those that don't know him. Let's get people looking to him. Let's get people focused on him. Let's let people know that there is a savior that can reach down and change your life. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, how do we have life through his name? Isn't it interesting that John would say it that way? You're going to have life through his name. Well, how is his name involved in all of this? Acts chapter 2, verse 37.
1: Now when they heard this, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. Heart, they said to Peter and to the, the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And here's Peter's answer. Then Peter said then unto Peter them. Peter said unto repent, them, Repent. And be baptized. And be baptized every one, of you, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. How? In the name of Jesus Christ.
0: How in the name of Jesus Christ
1: for the remission
0: remission
1: of sins sins. and you
0: shall receive the gift gift of the Holy Ghost. John said these things are written that you might have life through his name. How do we apply his name to our salvation? We do it in the waters of baptism. John was making a reference even then to the plan of salvation. This is what it's all about. This is what you've got to do. Repent of your sins. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you've got to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. 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 Let's stand this morning. Praise God. Hallelujah. That you might have life through his name. Amen. In fact, in fact, let me just show you how John, let me show you how John ties in Acts 238 so beautifully. In, in the opening chapter of John, the very first chapter, go ahead and start playing. Uh, the very first chapter of John, he makes a statement. Um, verse 12, verse 12.
1: But as many as received but him. as many as did what? Received him. As many as
0: received
1: him. To them gave he power. To them gave he power. To become the sons of God. Now, now let's think about this. And then he goes on to say. Even, Even to, to them, them that believe on his, on his name. name. Let's think about this.
0: As many as received him, he gave power. What do we receive to get power? Acts 1 and 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. In chapter 1 John's already making reference to the infilling of the Holy Ghost and when we get to the end he's making reference to baptism in Jesus name. I'm telling you Acts 238 is all tied into this whole gospel. There's only one way to be saved. Hallelujah. You got to go the gospel way. You got to go through the death, the burial, the resurrection. You've got to repent of your sins. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You've got to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost evidenced by speaking in other tongues. And we didn't finish Acts chapter 2. That portion uh, a few minutes ago, we stopped with verse 38, but we can't really close until we give you verse 39 so you can understand it wasn't just for those in the days of the apostles. But verse 39 says this. The promise is is to you and to your children and to your children and to. to, Hallelujah. To all. To all. There are no exceptions. To all that are afar off. Even as many as the Lord our God. God shall call. I'm telling you, if you're going to be saved, it's going to be because God called you. God drew you. No man can come to him except the Spirit draw him. So if God draws you, if God calls you, then he gives you the promise that you can receive this same gift. Hallelujah. It's for me. It's for you. It's for your children. And their children too. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad for the gift of the Holy Ghost today? Aren't you glad for the knowledge of the truth? For you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hallelujah. Not just set you free, but make you free. There's a difference. There's a difference. Amen. I think I said this a few weeks ago, but you know, you can go and sneak a man out of jail, somehow help him to escape from jail, and he's been set free. But the crime is still hanging over his head, and now he's got additional crime. So he hadn't been made free. But when that pardon comes through and says, we're taking this off your record, and he walks out of the jail, he hasn't just been set free, he's been made free. There's no going back. We we quote the scripture wrong. We say, He whom the Son sets free. We say that that he's that the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But that's not that's not what he says. It's not the truth shall set you free, but the truth shall make you free. That's why he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Because he's not just setting you free, he's making you free. He's giving you a pardon. He's erasing your record. He's taking it all away. And you're starting anew and afresh. Praise God. Praise God. If you're here today and you don't have the power of the Holy Ghost, you can have it. You can have it. If you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, you need to be. Hallelujah. Because you need to be made free. Let's lift our hands again, everyone. Let's lift our hands. Let's lift our hands. Like praying. But feel like praying today, the altars are open. His promise is yours. He'll give it to you. He'll repent of your sins. Hallelujah. Oh, let's talk to the Lord. Let's talk to the